Good evening, listeners. It is the 4th of June, 2017, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Scott Classic. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one of these students each week. So if you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the cool things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are lucky to be joined by Zoe Alley from the School of Psychological Sciences. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So how about you tell our listeners first uh, what it is you do in the School of Psychological Sciences? Well, I'm sure that all of you have had the experience that you see somebody and there's just something about their face. You think, well, that's a really cool person. That's someone I'd like to get to know. Conversely, you've all probably had the experience where you see somebody and you just shift a little bit to the away on your seat because something about that person just gives you a bad feeling. Well, it turns out that that bad feeling people can get about a face can determine sentencing decisions in uh, the court of law. In fact, people who are... Um, accused for crimes that the death sentence might be a possible sentence for, um, actually are more likely to get the death sentence if they look less trustworthy, according to people. That's really interesting. Yeah, so briefly, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit in more detail about this later, but what makes a person's face trustworthy or not? That's a really great question. Um, there are a lot of factors that can go into that, but the dimension of trustworthiness that I'm particularly interested in is very subjective. So it's just if you take a bunch of people and you have them look at a face and you ask them, how trustworthy does this face look to you? And you take an average of those scores. Obviously, different people are going to get different impressions from the same face, but if you take an average of a large number of people's opinions, the uh, results tend to be pretty consistent. And if you look at those results over a large number of people, you can tend to notice a few patterns. For example, having higher eyebrows and upturned lips tends to be associated with a face, a face that's trustworthy. And if you look at that just on a picture, what that ends up looking like is sort of like a smile. So if your resting face looks happier and more approachable and more friendly, then you tend to look more trustworthy. If you have trouble kind of figuring out what these uh, facial descriptions look like, we also have this description on our blog, so you can check those out. Uh, we tweeted them out, and you can find it at KBVRID with that Twitter handle. Yeah, basically the guy who is, um, it's like the same face, but um, the guy starts off on one end of the spectrum looking mm -hmm. really angry, and then on the other end of the spectrum he looks very happy and warm, I guess. You just got to remember that this is the resting state facial expression. It's not like he's intentionally smiling, it's just... His face happens to be structured in a slightly more positive manner. So you, you had mentioned this, that it's, it's an unintentional face. This is something that we're doing when we're walking to the bus stop or, you know, reading a book or something. It's our resting face. But what does that have to do in terms of our life outcomes if, you know, it's something that we're doing voluntarily? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it tur I told you before that how your face looks can determine in the court of law how people think about what, you, what it is that you've done. And um, that can be true whether or not you're innocent or guilty of the crime. So how you look actually does impact the way that people treat you. And where my research comes in is trying to determine if how you look is actually related to what you've done in the past. That's really interesting. So is it related to what they've done in the past? <laughs> yes <laughs> and I'd no. Ask That's obvious. a great question. <laughs> um, so what I looked at is uh, a longitudinal study, which is a study that took place over many years. And we followed a group of 183 men from the ages of about 12 or 11 until they were um, 25 years old. And we looked at the kinds of behaviors that they were engaging in and whether those behaviors were something that would be, you know, something that would, a trustworthy person would do or something that they wouldn't. For example, were they using substances like marijuana or tobacco or alcohol? Were they engaging in delinquent behaviors such as uh, withholding change from a cashier or uh, beating other people up? And how many times had they been arrested? And it turns out that those things actually were related to how trustworthy they looked at the age of 25. So there's uh, some evolutionary advantage, I imagine, to being able to judge somebody based on their facial characteristics pretty quickly as to, am I going to let them hold my bike while I tie my shoe? Because maybe they're going to steal my bike, right? But again, how, how good were the people's judgments of how trustworthy these people actually were? Were we, you know, 10 for 10 every single time? No. <laughs> and again, this had to be taken on as an average score. So the ratings that we had were from, I think, 19 different people who had no idea what the study was about and had never seen these people before and had, you know, no, no idea about what any of this was. And we took an average of their scores. I actually went through all these phases and I rated them for trustworthiness myself and I compared my ratings to the average scores and they were different. They were very different. So at an individual level, um, your own idea about how trustworthy someone looks may not be very valid as to what they've actually done in the past. And in fact, the, uh, the judgments of facial trustworthiness were, were not perfectly related to how delinquent the person had been in the past. There was a lot of wiggle room there and a lot of other factors that contributed to how trustworthy this person looked. Interesting. Um, one aspect that you, so I, just to clarify the um, uh, experiment that you're, the data set that you're looking at is um, you mentioned a lot of this is observational behavior as in like, you know, um, following these people from when they were around uh, 11 or so to around 25 and noting whether um, they had committed any crimes or used any like alcohol, tobacco, et cetera. Um, but was there any um, sort of, uh, simulated experiment done on this group of people where, like you mentioned, they withheld change from um, a cashier or something. Was that like sort of a simulated psychological experiment or is that just completely observational? Um, everything, yeah, th this study is an observational study. We didn't manipulate anything. So okay. what we were relying on is the self-report of these individuals. Okay. So every year they would come in for an interview and they would talk about the kinds of behaviors that they'd engaged in and how much substance they had used over time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it, yeah, the, this data was collected every year and they would come in for an interview. Okay. So what was the, um, you mentioned a couple different things when we talked to you earlier about um, why this data set is unique and um, how you're looking at this in uh, a bit of a different way than others tend to 
look at things in um, in terms of judging people's faces by how trustworthy they might be. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure thing. Okay, so a, a lot of research in facial trustworthiness is focused on the perceiver. So if I'm looking at a face, what are the factors about that face that make me feel that that person is trustworthy or not? So the interest is on me. Um, I'm more curious about how does your face impact you? What kinds of life outcomes are going to happen to you because of the face that you have? Or are the things that you're doing actually impacting your face, right? So the, the shift of, my study kind of has a shift of focus from the perceiver to the target of those perceptions, the person that you're judging as trustworthy or not. So this brings up an interesting point because you had mentioned prior that a lot of studies will focus on the perceiver. So, you know, whoever, whoever they're judging is kind of left outside and they don't really care about it. They want to figure out, you know, why we make those decisions. But your research is different in the sense that you really want to figure out if the thing, if these people are, who are being judged negatively or positively, if that can have a real life difference in outcome. And especially considering the study you focused on was at starting at this adolescent or maybe, you know, 10 or 12 years old, um, how, how do you think that has an impact, especially when, you know, creating these formative relationships early in life? That is an excellent question. So um, the out, we do know that what people had done seems to be related to how they look later, but we don't know what caused which. So it could be that engaging in delinquent behaviors, making angry faces and getting into fights, maybe your face gets scarred up and your face starts to form muscles that make you look angry all the time. That could be the case. Um, it could also be that somebody who just happens to be born with a more... Uh, untrustworthy face has a is inter, in, ha, sets about interaction styles with other people or other people start to look at them as if they were untrustworthy and that can create a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, so it's like a, a probably a negative feedback loop in a sense where because it's a positive of, feedback it's loop a positive negative consequence there yes. it is yeah <laughs> thank you scott you're a smarter yeah. person than me <laughs> so that, that that's really unfortunate in that you know it's in, it's something that you can't really control right um but what are some things that you can do just in everyday life to say uh, maybe things, maybe people will think of you as being more trustworthy? Well, one thing that accounted for a substantial proportion of the variance in facial trustworthiness or just how trustworthy people looked in these photographs um, that we couldn't, we, we had to control for it, was whether or not people were smiling. So if, if you're smiling, people will consistently think that you look more trustworthy. So if you think you have an untrustworthy face, I guess my recommendation to you is smile. <laughs> and this brings up an interesting conundrum. Um, and for our listeners, this is Inspiration Dissemination, a radio show every Sunday. And today we're lucky to be speaking to Zoe Ali, who's part, or Zoe Alley, who's part of the Psychological Sciences Program. And you study trust, especially in faces. And to me, I would find it difficult to do that because every day I'm interacting with new people. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective, has this research, because, you know, you're, you're thinking about this, reading about these different, uh, you know, mechanisms and behaviors, has this influenced your personal outlook on how you trust others? Well, I think it does, hasn't really impacted the way that I trust other people, but it does impact the way that I think about how I'm trusting other people. So it's really impossible to sort out your own biases that you might have to others. You can be aware of them, but they're kind of an instinctual reaction, like a knee-jerk reflex. You can't get rid of them. 
So when I'm talking to people, a lot of times I think, well, gee, what is, could there be things about their face that I'm not picking up on that are impacting the way that I'm thinking about them? And that is something that I think about a lot. Oh, man. I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, con- it, it's one thing to, to research a, a topic or a thing and then constantly yeah. see that thing, you know, over and over again. But It just to- sounds really hard to me, you know, because I'd want to do it in a standardized way and I'd feel like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to, like, trust my intuition on something when I'm also, like, trying to evaluate it from, like, a scientific standpoint. But, uh, yeah, it sounds really cool. You have a story for us, Zoe, if I remember, um, a story about a guy named Bob. Oh, Bob. Yeah, you guys want to hear about Bob. <laughs> I, I'd like sure. to hear. Well, Bob is a small child who just so happens to be born with a face that looks pr- kind of untrustworthy. And Bob's fictional, as we should say, but he may yeah. be Bob an is, example. Bob is pretend. Yeah. He's an allegory. So little Bob goes to school for the first time, and he's pretty excited. But the other kids, they're, 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 they're nervous to approach him because he just kind of looks scary. And when they do approach him, they try to be tough because they're scared that if they aren't tough around Bob, that, that he'll beat them up. So whenever they approach him, they're kind of aggressive, and Bob picks up on that. And so he acts aggressive, too, to try to you know, match them. This is the social norm, right? He's never been to school before. And when he starts acting aggressive, everyone says, oh, yeah, that's right. That's Bob. He's aggressive. Can't you tell? Because his face is so untrustworthy. Well, anyhow, Bob starts to get into fights with his peers, and his teacher looks, and she sees this really cute kid getting into a fight with this really scary-looking kid, and she's like, Bob, what are you doing? You need to stop getting into fights. So this teacher pays extra special close attention to Bob, as do all his teachers. And every time he leans over during a test, of course Bob is cheating, because he looks very untrustworthy. He's got to be cheating, right? Anyhow, this ultimately culminates in him having not a lot of friends, And the people that he does hang out with are people who also tend to not have a lot of friends, maybe real troublemakers who like to go out and spray graffiti on walls and go on joyrides. And he's reluctant to engage in these behaviors, but hey, they're his friends and stuff. Eventually, his friends get into trouble, and he's implicated in the problem as well, and there's this court case, and he just looks very untrustworthy, and he always hangs out with these delinquent peers, right? So of course he's guilty too, and he ends up in juvenile hall where he has to be extra dominant and extra aggressive in order to assert himself in this environment. And by the time he comes out, he is an aggressive person, not because he was born that way, but because the people around him have initiated interaction styles that drew out those things for him. And at this point, that's all he knows. Sounds like a bad day for Bob. Is there anything that he can do that would sort of help him? Besides smiling, as you mentioned, maybe is is it too late for him now to learn how to smile more? Yeah, Bob's Bob's kind of in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. So this is a chicken or the egg issue. Was it the fact that Bob had an untrustworthy face that caused him to be untrustworthy, or was it the fact that his untrustworthy face, other people picked up on that, and he only reciprocated the feelings that others were kind of imposing onto him? And I think this is where your, your research is particularly interesting because, again, you're not looking at how we perceive, but you're looking at the effects, the effects felt on those who are perceived. Um, so since you're in your first year of your Ph.D. program, I, I would like to hear, you know, where do you think, uh, wh- where do you see this research kind of going? And are there already some, some other research groups that, you know, have maybe started down this path? Well, um, 
I really want to look at whether or not the face changes over time. At this point, I've only had time to look at photographs at age 25, but there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. And if we can see that facial trustworthiness is constant across the lifespan, that probably means that the relationship we're seeing between behavior and how you look is uh, related to the way that other people are treating you. But if we do see changes in facial trustworthiness over time, that might mean that what you're doing is impacting how you look. And that's actually something called the Dorian Gray effect. It's a, it's a hypothesis, and there's some evidence for it, but I don't know if there, have been a, there hasn't been a longitudinal study to look at that in regard to facial trustworthiness yet. And this is one of the major difficulties with this kind of research is that you need literally decades worth of data. And it has to be standardized in the sense that you, you kind of get the people's behaviors and their, their photos, along with maybe a, a lot of other factors, you know, uh, what was their socioeconomic background to control mm-hmm. for some of those things. So are there any other studies that have done something like this? The one that you described is the Oregon Youth Study. Uh, is there anything else that's kind of on the horizon? Um, now, a, a woman named Leslie Z. Browitz, uh, she's a giant in this field, has looked into facial features such as baby-facedness and how that might change over time. Um, which is related to facial trustworthiness, but not the same. Can you just describe, like, what is baby-facedness? It's the extent to which your face looks like a baby. Oh, okay. And uh, <laughs> it tends to be associated with, uh, you know, things that you would associate with a baby. What is a baby? A baby's sweet, a baby's submissive. Rounded facial features, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Round cheeks, big eyes, tiny chin, little mouth, tiny little button nose. <laughs> Actually, lots of cartoon characters have a stereotypical baby face. Even Santa Claus is pretty baby-faced. If you want to try to picture somebody with a baby face, someone with a really round face. And I trust Santa Claus, even though he's breaking into people's houses all the time. <laughs> exactly. That is the consequence of facial trustworthiness, right? Of how your face looks. <laughs> you can get away with breaking into Bob people's houses. Bob can get away with that. <laughs> no, Bob could not get away with that. If Bob was Santa Claus, he'd be in jail. Um, anyhow, so it, the... So it's babyfacedness is associated with lots of positive things, but it's also associated with incompetence and negligence and forgetfulness and a lack of intelligence because babies aren't known for their super intelligence <laughs> levels. Huh, so they're more trustworthy, but uh, there is definitely some drawbacks in that. And for, for listeners who are out there, uh, we have some links in our blog on the Zebrowitz work. Was, did I say her name correctly? Zebrowitz, I think. Zebrowitz, as well as the Oregon Youth Study that we're describing here today. Um, from a larger perspective, taking a step back, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on what it really means to trust somebody. W- what does that mean from a person-to-person standpoint, for me to trust my mother with a really you know, tough secret or to trust your significant other in, some, in something that you think you might have done was wrong? Okay, so in, in regard to my research, I think of trust as giving somebody the opportunity to hurt you. So you, you're trusting them not to take advantage of you. You think, this is a person who I can leave with my purse. They're not going to run off with my purse. So it's putting yourself in a vulnerable situation because you think you can count on that other person, potentially for mutual benefit. Um, there have been some experimental studies that have looked at a money lending game where, you, let's say, they give you $5 and you have, the, you have a choice. You can pass on the $5 to a partner. The partner will then get $15, and the partner can decide whether or not to split that with you. You either end up with whatever your partner gives you or you end up with nothing if the person decides mm-hmm. not to give you anything. 
So that's a question of trust. Am I going to trust this person with this money so that maybe both of us can end up better off, but I might end up with nothing? Is usually, um, I guess, in that sort of scenario, if you trust someone else, I, I imagine that probably makes them more likely to trust you back. Is that usually a, a pretty clear two-way street that's established, I guess, at least in experimental studies based on what we know about trust? Yeah, in social psychology, there's something called the, the norm of reciprocation or something like that, where um, if somebody does something nice for you, you're pretty much obligated to do something nice for them. If you need a favor, like maybe moving your moving stuff from one room to another, if you're moving a house or whatever, if you're changing locations, you're going to think about a friend who owes you, right? <laughs> you're going to think about who's somebody who owes me a favor, right? That, that's the norm of reciprocation. So yes, there is some evidence for stuff like that happening. That's good to know, I guess. So then when you were growing up, did you keep all the Play-Doh to yourself and then not let anybody play with your Play-Doh? Or were you very trustworthy of others? How, how did you initially become involved with this area of trust research when you were growing up? Well, um, I ha it took me a while to get to this point. When I first started studying psychology or thinking about studying psychology, I was 14. And um, it was because all the things that I really loved to do had to do with people. I loved reading about people and stories that had characters, and I wanted to know what was driving what people did. And I was very interested in the arts, which is an expression of human emotions, right? And I thought, well, what, what would that look like if we studied humanity scientifically? Can we combine those kinds of almost separable ideas, right? And uh, at that point, I started looking into psychology. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I wanted to help people with mental disorders because that's all that I thought that there was. After a while, I started to figure out that you can really only help one person at a time through that route. And I might be able to change a lot, uh, a lot of people's lives if I looked into something broader. If I could get involved in research and I could find out what kinds of things lead to a successful, happy life, what kinds of barriers do people face, and how can we help people overcome those barriers on a societal level, I, I felt like I could make a much bigger impact on my community. So that realization, were you um, in undergrad by that point or mm, taking classes? Um, seems like a pretty like profound thing to have at a pretty early age. That realization, I think, happened maybe in the second, in my second year of college. But uh, I, I knew I wanted to do psychology since I was 14. I've been working on it since then. That's pretty cool. I, I think most of us are not really in that same situation where we're just trying to, what am I going to do with my life? I don't know. Go to grad school, I guess. <laughs> so uh, speaking of psychology, and it, you know, it sounds like the reason why you really wanted to get in this was not necessarily for yourself, but for others. The idea of trying to help the community in any way that you could. Um, so why did you decide to go to Oregon State then for your undergraduate degree? Oh, for example, um, well, th this, I actually was born in the Willamette Valley. I was born in Corvallis. I grew up in this area. My parents went to OSU. Um, I am who I am because of this place and the people here. And I really wanted to give something back, which is why I'm really excited that I get to do research that's taking place here in this area and hopefully make an impact on this place as it's made an impact on me. And then how did you decide to continue after your undergrad uh, for a PhD? Well, again, little Zoe, who was 14 years old, she knew she wanted to be a psychologist. And <laughs> to be a psychologist, you have to go to grad school. 
So that was kind of on my radar for a really long time. Um, I knew that I loved research, and I got my feet wet on that idea when I was working on my undergrad, actually, and I, I had so much fun with it, and I was learning so much, and I was really challenging myself, and I felt like this was the best way to uh, reach my full potential, because I, I learn a lot through this, and I, I think I'm pretty good at it, so it's something that I feel is very rewarding and has the potential to, to make an impact on my world and on other people, too, so I guess that's why. <laughs> I'd like to hear your first experience with research because you said you got involved with it as an undergrad. How exactly did you get involved in, you know, what did you find? Well, when I first came to OSU, I actually was fortunate enough to get a tour of some of the research labs here. And um, I spent some time working in an attention and performance lab, which was a wonderful experience. I got to see some of the EEG machines. That's where they put electrodes on people's heads and they measure their... uh, brain activity. And that was a really great experience, but it made me realize that I wanted to look more at a kind of a community focus. Um, I also did some research looking at uh, advertising effectiveness and how that's mediated by how well your memory works. And my idea there was that if we could figure out how we could give people informational messages, maybe we could um, share health information at a more uh, efficient way. And you also did some work with some preschoolers, is that right? Oh yeah, that was so much fun. Um, I got to walk around to different preschool envir- um, preschools and I would sit in a corner and I'd watch one child go about their day and I would be looking for very specific behaviors to see whether or not that child had mastered a skill we like to call inhibitory control. Anytime that you raise your hand instead of shouting out an answer, that's an example of inhibitory control. And um, it's actually a really important skill for uh, child success in adulthood, in college, in the, sh- in the social environment as well. But it turns out that there are a bunch of different ways to measure inhibitory control in preschool children, and not all of them tell you the same thing. So that's what my uh, undergraduate honors thesis was about, was uh, how uh, inhibitory control in, in uh, preschool children can be measured and whether or not all of those are telling you the same thing about the child. And it sounds like if you're measuring it at a group setting, it's not the same uh, probably measurement that you'd get if you were one-on-one with this child, right? That's actually what I found, yeah. So if if you uh, look at how a child behaves in the classroom and then you ask a teacher, how does that child behave in your classroom? Those measurements will actually be pretty similar. But if you take the child outside of the classroom and you play a challenging game with the kid, um, the task that I used was called the head, toes, knees, and shoulders task. And that's where you tell the child, okay, when I tell you to touch your head, I want you to touch your toes. Oh, you try and trick them. Oh, yeah. When you try to touch your to- when I tell you to touch your toes, you got to touch your head. And then you throw in shoulders and knees, too, and then halfway through, you switch the rules on them. And it- what? Oh, it's, it's, it's very hard for them. You can see them thinking. Their hands slowly go up to their head, and they stop, and they think, and then they reach for their toes, and it's, it's really cute. Um, but that's them, you know, they have to inhibit the dominant response to do as they're told and touch their head and remember the special rule for this situation and touch their toes, which is supposed to be inhibitory control. But it turns out that this measure of inhibitory control is not really related to what you see in the classroom as a trained observer or what you ask teachers ch- children are actually doing. And that might be because in a one-on-one task, their children are more engaged in what they're doing. They don't have peers around them to distract them. I guess the main takeaway from this is that if you're going to be measuring something about a child, you have to remember that context matters. And um, the kinds of environments that you're looking at make an impact on how somebody behaves. I think going back to your current research, uh, again, context matters because it it really does depend on, you know, 
the socioeconomic background of this person, who they're surrounded by, their friends, and potentially how their friends view them or their or you know or their teachers and whatnot. But over and under, it it does sound like your main objective in this world is to try and figure out how to help others. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. <laughs> So with that, we are running out of time, and we have two traditions on the show. Yeah, so one of them is what advice would you give to other, maybe other incoming graduate students or a younger version of yourself and uh, possibly going into graduate school or going into um, uh, something like it? Well, definitely do something that you love. You're going to spend a lot of hours staying up late working on this. So make sure that it's something that entertains you and excites you. And make sure that it's meaningful to you on some kind of a personal level. Also, smile. People will like you more. <laughs> and I have a, another question on advice. Uh, because you're part of a new program that had the psychological sciences program that just started. So do you have any advice for students who are interested in finding out more about this program? Oh, yes, please come check it out. We're a new cohort in the, the graduate school here. This is our first year. There's only three of us. We're bringing a few more people in next year. It's a really great program. There's a heavy um, focus on applied research, on application, how we can actually impact people's lives with the science of humanity and how people work, how people think, and how people behave. It's a really cool program, so check it out. I expect the rest of your cohort to be on the show as well in the coming in the coming months and weeks. <laughs> I'll ask them about it. They're pretty cool too. <laughs> okay, good. And we also have a second tradition that we like to end on, and that's we ask our guests for a song. So what song is it, and why did you choose it? Don't You Forget About Me, that song. It's an old song. I love it. Um, is the artist again? I think it's Simple Minds. Yeah. And uh, I, I, uh, I love that song. When I was going to graduate from OSU, I wasn't sure if I'd be staying here yet. If because I, we didn't know whether there was going to be a graduate, uh, a graduate program in psychology, right? Yeah, it just happened to work out perfectly that the program opened the year I left. But anyhow, <laughs> as I was neat. getting ready to graduate with my bachelor's degree, I would be thinking of that song, thinking, don't forget about me, OSU. So, so the song really came to fame from The Breakfast Club, the film. Did yeah. that have an impact on you as well? I've actually never seen that movie. <gasps> oh, it's a great film. It's a great film. <laughs> yeah. I saw that song. I think you didn't like it very much. Uh, not really. Oh, that was great. <laughs> I saw it on Pitch Perfect. Like they they had that oh. song on Pitch Perfect. <laughs> well, I guess that there's two films that make this song famous, and and Zoe being the third person to make this song famous. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's make it famous. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Zoe, for joining us again. Yeah, this is thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> this is Inspiration Dissemination. You can catch us every Sunday at seven o'clock. Here it is with "Don't You Forget About Me" by Simple Minds. <laughs>